Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world, produced in the studios of 3CR on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Judith Peppard. As most of us are aware, the federal government has committed Australia to an emissions reduction target of 43% by 2030 and net zero by 2050. But in August last year, the government announced the opening of 10 new sites for oil and gas exploration off the coast of Australia, and that's in addition to existing exploration licenses and many that are awaiting approval or renewal from NOPTA, the National Offshore Petroleum Titles Administrator. Once NOPTA issues the license, the next step is to get approval from NOPSEMA, the National Offshore Petroleum Safety and Environmental Management Authority. And if you want to know how many applications are awaiting approval for offshore exploration and where they want to explore for oil and gas in Australian waters near you, check out their websites. One project that has attracted community attention and environmental concern is Asset Energy's PEP-11. When Asset Energy initially applied to renew the PEP-11 exploration license, it was knocked back by then-Prime Minister Scott Morrison when he secretly assumed the responsibilities of Resources Minister Keith Pitt. Scott Morrison's decision was challenged. And today on Earth Matters, Sam Hepburn from Deakin University School of Law will bring us up to date on what's been happening and people's concerns about the PEP-11 project. And then we'll look more closely at that concern and how anthropogenic or human-made noise impacts the marine environment and the creatures that live there. There's a whole host of social interactions that are mediated by sound, as well as response to threats that requires animals being able to hear and work out what's going on and then respond accordingly. Graham Shannon, a lecturer in zoology at Bangor University in the UK, and that's coming up later in the show. But first, Sam Hepburn. I asked Sam what was happening with Asset Energy's PEP-11 project. What seems to have happened is they've had a consent order to drop the litigation, which in legal terms means they're not going to proceed with the action, and the action was going to be judicial review of the decision based upon the fact that did Scott Morrison have the authority. So there seems to have been a decision to avoid costly litigation and drop the action, which at the same time, part of the consent order has meant that that decision to reject the renewal has been abandoned as well. So we go back to the position before Scott Morrison stepped in to veto it. So they've got a current exploration licence and they want to seek renewal of that exploration license. That's what they wanted to do from the start. The idea is to accelerate gas extraction on that pristine coast along New South Wales. And I think it covers 4,574 kilometres of beautiful coastline, including the northern beaches. The concern is what impact that is going to have upon the marine ecology. And it's, it's likely to be quite devastating. Asset Energy and BPH are likely to take the next step once it's clear 
that you know everything's settled, the consent orders come through, they're then going to reapply. So will they be reapplying, first of all, for the renewal of the license, and then they'll send environmental plans through to NOPSEMA? Are those the next steps? So what we have is a joint authority, a joint state and Commonwealth authority through NOPSEMA. The ultimate power is with the Commonwealth. The reason Scott Morrison could veto it was because at the Commonwealth level, he'd assumed control secretly of those ministries. He could come in and veto it. The New South Wales government has got an election coming up, wants to present some environmental credentials and is indicating that it's going to reject it. But the New South Wales government does not have the final say. The federal government does. The federal government is a new government. And the question is, what are they going to do because they haven't really come out and said that they won't approve it. We're in the dark and there's a lot of uncertainty about what will happen next. That's right, Judith, we absolutely are. If you've got an exploratory licence, it allows you to carry out exploratory activities. Exploratory activities include seismic testing. They really want to work out what areas are likely to have the most productive areas for, for drilling to extract gas. This is renewed exploration. So the indication here is there's a lot there that's leading us towards production. In simple terms, along the kind of licence regime, they are proceeding towards full production. And NOPSEMA will require an environmental plan. It will. And that was obviously given at the previous application, any concerns or issues that might have been raised regarding that environmental plan, they now have an opportunity to amend. I'm wondering how rigorous NOPSEMA's requirements are with regard to environmental plans. Are they peer-reviewed, for example? No, they're not peer-reviewed. There's legislation requiring an environmental plan and requiring the applicant to have undertaken studies and to look at impacts, how those impacts would be mitigated. I'll say, well, this area, manly colony of penguins is going to be impacted, but we think it will only be this degree. If that does occur, we'll do this. Predicting what might happen, and it might be a lot worse. So an environmental plan is necessarily predictive, saying these are the events that are likely to happen. And often there are events which not SEMA could step in after the fact and say, oh, well, you know, this impact was not something we could foresee, so we'll impose an environmental condition. But many of these large fossil fuel companies do have a history of incorporating a breach of those conditions as part of their operating costs. And it's particularly concerning in the offshore area because who's watching? Not seen as supposed to be watching, but it's harder to conduct these types of audits. You're under the water. One of the aspects of the environmental plan is what impact is this going to have on our climate commitments? We're not supposed to be opening up any more gas or coal on or offshore. Undoubtedly, the companies are going to say, we're going to be taking that carbon and we're going to be injecting it into subsea reservoirs to store it under the sea. The concern with that, of course, is that it hasn't been successful in Australia. So if we go over to the only other time when it has been used, the Gorgon project, it simply hasn't worked. So in the meantime, all of those emissions are being released, despite the fact that they weren't supposed to be released in the first place. Offshore CCS is extremely difficult. The idea is that you would somehow be able to separate the carbon, liquidise it and inject it into a subsea reservoir without getting clogged with sand and without having any issues with seawater. That has just simply eluded Chevron and they've got a, a big budget. 
it's likely those same issues are going to be transferred over to any CCS project in the PEP 11 area. Despite these environmental concerns, Asset Energy and some politicians have argued that PEP 11 is needed because of the international situation like the war in Ukraine, higher energy prices and gas shortages in Australia. I put that to Sam Hepburn. That's just ludicrous. Absolutely, it's ludicrous. We have an enormous amount of gas. The big problem is that it's getting exported offshore. If we were really concerned about a domestic supply on the East Coast, we would implement a reservation policy, which has been incredibly successful in the West Australian market. And we haven't done that. The Albanese government has introduced a temporary price cap, which will expire in 12 months. It has introduced a code of conduct and it has tightened up domestic security gas mechanism, which has never been used, by the way. The domestic gas security mechanism is supposed to be, if there's a gas shortfall, the government in the year before says, right, there's going to be a gas shortfall, you have to restrict your exports. It's never used it. Whenever they consult to say we're about to announce the following year as a shortfall year, gas suddenly trickles back into the market so that there's no export controls implemented. And the only thing that the Albanese government has introduced, you can announce three months' notice and it'll be quarterly now that they could implement export restrictions. But it's still couched in so much discretion that it's unlikely to be effective. We need a mandate. We need to say, right, big LNG producers on the East Coast, we may have a supply concern, We need to have a mandate saying what you're currently extracting from the ground has a climate impact. So there are public interest responsibilities associated with that. One of the public interest responsibilities is we need to use this gas as we transition towards renewables and fix up distribution in the grid. We will need to use some of this gas and this is how much of it has to stay here. How are we going to reduce emissions by 43% on 2005 levels by 2030 if we are opening up a massive new offshore gas plant, which will massively impact fragile marine ecologies and is incredibly disturbing to think the whale roots and the penguins and not to even mention all of the destruction in the marine areas. All of this has a really strong underlying public interest responsibility element that we have not been examining. Previously, we've assumed that public interest equates with making some sort of money from royalties or tax. Of course, we know that most of the large companies aren't really paying their tax, that royalties will somehow be redistributed back into the community. What I would argue is the climate emergency is actually a much more powerful public interest responsibility now because people are losing their homes from floods and from bushfires. That economic impact and that social and emotional impact is so powerful that that public interest responsibility needs to be re-evaluated. We can't continue with business as usual. If this project goes ahead, and this is kind of related to the need for more energy argument, that energy wouldn't become available for quite a few years. Is that right? That's exactly right. So what point is it to approve an offshore gas project covering such a huge area 
adjacent to the northern beaches and that whole coastline on the idea that we need more gas, we probably won't need it by the time production commences. We need to really be vocal in our discussion on this. There have been so many projects around Australia. This is one example, but there's been others where the community has been absolutely up in arms and still projects are getting approved. What credence do oil and gas industries, the regulator, NOPSEMA, the government, what value do they place on social licence? That's a very good question. What value do they place on social licence? You say social licence, I say public interest. They have to do things that reflect public interest. And social licensing is supposed to be the representation of that public interest. If you are simply doing the tokenistic thing of, yes, you can make submissions, we'll take that into account, and then proceeding and approving it anyway, you are not really fulfilling your obligations as the guardian of that public resource. That's what I would say there. And so there's a fundamental disjunct between what you think you have the power to do and what you are supposed to be doing. And really, it never ceases to amaze me, this idea we might run out as being some sort of basis for continuing with the approval and expansion of fossil fuels in light of what we know, the catastrophic nature of what the IPCC reports have indicated. We know we have to stop this. And the irony for Australia is we already have so much gas. When at base, it's very clear that nobody wanted the exploratory licence to be approved and nobody still wants the exploratory licence to be approved. Nothing has changed. So the consent order might be, oh, well, we've decided we're not going to continue with litigation. But that doesn't change the fact that the environmental impact, the social licensing and our climate commitments remain the same. Professor Sam Hepburn from Deakin Law School at Deakin University. And Sam conducts research in the areas of climate governance, energy transitions, and natural resource jurisprudence. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, and today we've been looking at concerns about PEP11, a project to explore for gas off the central coast of New South Wales the impact of the project on the environment, both on the ocean itself but also along the coast. One of those concerns has been about the impact of noise on the marine environment in the area and the animals that live in the ocean. Dr. Graham Shannon is a lecturer in zoology at Bangor University in the UK. He and his colleagues have investigated underwater noise. And before we look at what they found, I was interested in the naturally occurring underwater sounds I asked Graham about that. To us, looking at them, sometimes you'd imagine the ocean is a quiet environment, but under the waves, there's a whole host of noise. Geophonic noise, that could be underwater earthquakes, it could be carving icebergs, it'll be wave action, it'll be the weather. You also get the biophony, which is the noise produced by life, snapping shrimps or whales communicating to each other across oceans fish communicate the natural soundscape, which we have on land as much as we do under the water, but maybe it's less appreciated how rich that is under the water. Why is sound so important in the underwater environment for the creatures that live there? Why does it matter? It really matters. Light doesn't penetrate that far through water. 
So the visual medium is kind of reduced. Sound, though, travels further and faster in water than it does in air. So it's a very effective communication medium, passing information, understanding where threats might be, perceiving predators, understanding where other individuals of your species, maybe for mating purposes, maybe for finding prey. Think of the echolocation that we see with many dolphin species. There's a whole host of social interactions that are mediated by sound, as well as response to threats that requires animals being able to hear and work out what's going on and then respond accordingly. If the hearing of a marine mammal is damaged, that's likely to have a huge impact on their ability to survive even. Absolutely. And in extreme cases with very loud noises, it can either cause a temporary threshold shift, which means a kind of short-term deafening of an animal, or you can get permanent threshold shift, which is a permanent damage to the ear. And that could have quite serious implications for the survival of the animal. It's important to note that that is probably only the case if animals are really exposed to very, very high noises. The bigger challenge is that the chronic noise, that low-level line noise from ships, from all our activity in the water, creates a different soundscape. It blocks out the natural sounds that they're using to communicate and interact with each other. So we call that masking. It's like being in a busy room, the cocktail effect, when people are in a busy room and everyone starts raising their voices to hear each other. And that's what animals kind of have to do. They have to shift their vocalizations to try and be heard over the noise of human activity. And that can impact their behavior and it can cause increased stress levels. It can also reduce foraging behavior. These things can have a long-term impact on the individual itself, but also at the population level. Tell me about the noises that are generated by humans in the underwater landscape. You've said that's increasing. Rapidly increasing. I read that it was a 35-fold increase over the last 50 years in low-frequency sound generated by along shipping routes. Cargo and goods that are transported across the planet have increased massively. So we have a range of noises, and it's interesting. Some are produced intentionally for the noise. You think of naval sonar for detecting ships or underwater objects geophysical survey, which will use very loud, impulsive sounds to detect oil or uh, gas deposits under the sea. But a lot of the noise that's produced is unintentional. There's no benefit to creating ship noise. It's just the propeller cavitation and the sound of the engine produces a lot of noise into the environment and it spreads a long distance. A lot of the sounds are very low frequencies. And what that means is they spread a lot further than higher frequency sounds, which tend to attenuate and drop off quickly. So they can spread over large areas well beyond the source of the noise. So we have all these range of sounds that are coming in, and it's the combination of those over the oceans that is changing the soundscape. You mentioned the the sonar sounds like for detecting submarines. When would those sonars have been put in place under oceans? They're going back naval sonar, like you say, decades, and they're used extensively by Navy. And they're also used by now the mining companies or trying to map uh, the underwater environment. So it's not just used for a naval purpose. But naval sonar has been linked to the stranding of a number of whale species. It's believed that that's caused confusion or that caused them to change their dive behavior quite dramatically. And a number of animals that were washed up had indications they'd they'd suffered something very similar to the bends, basically, which we see in humans, which is the rapid um, expansion of nitrogen bubbles out of the blood. And that might have been that startle response to sonar. There's been a number of cases where that, where naval exercises have been held and stranding events. It's not definitive, but the evidence is out there to suggest that that is localised, that the effects of naval sonar could be linked to stranding event in Wales. 
It's very difficult. You've got to be quite cautious. It's safe to say that the behavior, physiology of animals and the locality of these developments is affected. But whether it's directly driving mortality, the death of animals, is less clear. It might be a long-term effect over the course of the lifespan of the animal rather than an immediate effect. I think the strongest evidence is for the navel sonar. You also talk about noise negatively affecting animals' feeding behavior and increasing physiological distress. So a lot of these animals are feeding at depth. They will use sound either to locate food or to coordinate behavior. In some of the more social species, coordinate their foraging. Loud sound may interrupt that feeding, so they cut off that behavior. They may feed less successfully. Also, it's been shown in not just in, in the larger body species, but in smaller and larvae and stuff, that they're less successful at detecting predators. And one of the key papers that actually links the effects of noise to survival was in fish larvae that showed when they were introduced to the reef that those that experienced boat noise in the background had a much lower chance of survival because they were eaten by predators. They weren't detecting the predators. Either they were distracted by the noises or the approaching predator was masked, which was quite fascinating as well. And this is on a very small scale. It's experimentally done actually in Australian waters, I believe, and was one of the first to show the noise effects on survival, which is really challenging. We could show a shift in behaviour, but what does that mean for the survival of the animal? And this paper showed that, that, that motorboat noise was actually reducing survival of these fish. Graham Shannon, a lecturer in zoology at Bangor University in the UK. And as evidence of the negative impact of underwater noise on marine creatures grows... You'd think regulators would be requiring oil and gas companies working offshore to include strategies to reduce noise as part of their environmental plans. Lindy Walgard is from Dalhousie University in eastern Canada and a senior ocean noise expert with Ocean Care. I asked Lindy about regulations governing the practices of companies conducting seismic surveys as part of their oil and gas exploration, and particularly in relation to the protection of whales, because that's been such a big concern for the PEP11 project. For seismic surveys, why are we even taking oil and gas out of the ground? You know, that's a major issue. If we care about our climate at all. Like the air gun is almost like an explosive. It's air uh, released under very high pressures. So this is a very high intensity sound and quite destructive to living tissue because it's so sharp onset, just the way a a gunshot is. So what you can do is use the same energy, but you can spread it over time. And that lowers the intensity of the sound. There are technologies such as marine vibrosize that will do that. And it's a much more controlled source, so you can tailor make it for the particular conditions seismic survey companies, they just mainly use the loudest sound they can. So there's no fine tuning there at all. And it's not required by the regulator. It's very irrational. Some of the regulations that are in place, yes, during the daytime, you have to have marine mammal observers seeing if any whales are coming close. It's not useless, but it's a little silly because some whales are 80% of their time underwater, right? So the odds of you seeing any whale that could be approaching are, are very, and you'll just see a tiny fraction of them, but better than nothing. So you have these marine mammal observers trying to see if there's any whales coming too close. Within 500 meters, they're supposed to shut down. Well, that all goes out the window if it's during the nighttime. They get still there. And the idea is while we're shooting, you know, the whales should be sensible enough to stay away. 
Well, there's all sorts of reasons why they may not. The sound fields can be very difficult to interpret and to understand which way you have to go to get away from the sound. These seismic surveys also damage fish, most likely. The whales could be coming in for, you know, the stunned fish, and they can be seeing it as a threat. Some male humpbacks will approach because they wanting to confront the threat. You know, I don't think it's very precautionary to assume that the, the whales will stay away. There's a real discrepancy on what's required in the daytime compared to the night. Now, they do use passive acoustic monitoring sometimes, which is also better. But there, again, it's hard to tell if the animals are approaching or not. And some, they have to be vocal. And a lot of whales aren't that vocal. With regard to whales... If there's been a seismic test, say, in the past month, are whales in the area likely to be affected? It's a very good question because usually what's said about sound pollution or noise pollution, the good thing is you can just turn it off and then the effects are gone. But there are some effects that do linger. And actually in Australia, there have been two major studies on scallops and lobster that have shown, in fact, that some of these effects linger even up to a year after the seismic survey has stopped. That is disturbing. These are serious effects on mortality. You know, they affect the immune system so that mortality is even fivefold higher. They affect the anti-predator behavior. So these are all things that definitely can affect the health of the population. The other thing is there's a phenomenon that is like an aversive stimuli. So if you experience a very painful or very disturbing loud sound in a particular spot, you may associate it with that area and that may prevent you from wanting to visit that area again, even though it may be a valuable habitat in many other ways. So it's harder to tell that. That's very hard to study in whales. But it's something that has been shown in captive pinnipeds and sea lions or seals. It is something that you have to take into consideration, too. Are you removing valuable habitat because animals associate that area with the bad noise experience? And that, of course, affects feeding and their migration patterns. Are there any countries that you could point to that you feel are doing this well, monitoring the noise pollution and reducing it? Germany is is one of the better ones. They're one of the few countries that actually have a noise limit. For pile driving for offshore wind parks, they have set a noise limit. You know, and first the uh, companies were like, oh, that can't be done. Well, by golly, didn't, you know, as, as with most engineering things, if you give them a limit, they will figure out how to be compliant. And so this is why I think there have been all these innovations in both um, how to replace this pile driving hammer with something that's more vibratory, that's actually even noise-free. Secondarily, how to muffle the sound so that it doesn't spread as far. So there's tons of these technologies, and I do not think it's a coincidence that these cropped up in pile driving and not in seismic surveys because a country required that they had stay under a certain noise limit, and so they found ways to do that. So it sounds like the regulators can do a lot if they're determined, and if they're not in the pockets of the particular mining companies. Very true. There's a lot of revolving door, conflict of interest stuff, alarming, yeah. 
Lindy Weilgart from Dalhousie University on Canada's Atlantic coast. And the full interview with Lindy Weilgart was previously broadcast on 3RRR Community Radio Station. So thank you to RRRR for permission to rebroadcast parts of that interview. We're coming up to the end of Earth Matters. A big thank you to all our guests. Sam Hepburn from Deakin Law School at Deakin University. Graham Shannon from Bangor University in Wales in the UK. And Lindy Walgard from Dalhousie University in Canada. Earth Matters thanks the Community Radio Network for their work in broadcasting today's episode and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio Station in Nam, Melbourne, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. Tune in next week for more environment and social justice stories. Thank you.